0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today, you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So, without further ado, here he is. Morning. How's everybody? Yeah, I just got back from a week in Austin with uh, Austin, Texas, with four other pastors live and one via Zoom that I've been gathering with now for going on 20 years, and they've been a lifeline for me. And this time around, we studied a couple books together and just caught up on our lives. And the books we studied this time um, are sparking something like a theological revolution in me. Uh, Kind of terrifying and kind of exciting at the same time, but I realized how These are ideas that are pretty radical, and I don't know that I could have even opened my heart to them had it not been for trusted men, who I deeply love and respect, who are sharing these ideas with one another, sharpening each other. So I'm coming back um, very challenged, very refreshed, uh, having spent a week just with people I love. uh, But also the weekend was rough because I still had to preach. So I hope this message will still be okay. I, I poured my heart into it. We're going we're to do the second message in a short series called Follow Jesus. And I hope that the product of this series is that you will sense how much God loves you. And as Audrey was sharing about the offering time in that verse, Romans 12, when I thought, we offer everything to God not because he's poor and we want to give him something or because he doesn't want us to have all the things we treasure, but that in our hands, everything stays eh. But when it's handed over to God, that simple thing becomes treasured. It becomes precious. That hundred bucks I'm sitting on might become another shirt and a pair of shoes, but in the hands of God, miraculously, it becomes bread on the table of a family that was losing hope. It becomes the word of God in a household that had never heard the gospel. I think that when we offer our whole selves to God, it's because everything we offer, he converts into something of eternal value. He doesn't leave it what it is when it's offered. So I hope that encourages you to think about what it means when we're called to offer our whole selves. It's not just about losing something. It's about converting what in our hands would remain, earthly mud, and he turns it into treasure. Anyway, that's not the message, but it's, it's something that's kind of churning in my heart. I wanted to just get it off my chest and share it with you. You In May 1992, I found myself standing outside my professor's office. She was my doctoral advisor, and I was in a, a graduate program in genetic engineering and I've been wrestling for months with what I sensed was a call to ministry. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with something huge, but that was the biggest wrestling I've ever gone through in my life. And through lots of prayer, lots of conversation with people in my church community, with mentors in my life, my pastor, I was pretty confident that I was hearing correctly that God was telling me to leave this program and go and serve him without knowing quite where this journey would take me. In fact, as that calling became more certain in my heart, I was getting more and more excited. I was picturing all the things I get to study, all the exciting places I get to go, the people I get to touch in Jesus' name. And I was getting really excited until I walked into that office to tell my advisor that I'm leaving the program. Uh, The way that program worked, I was getting a pretty big stipend. They were covering my tuition. I was getting paid back in the early 90s enough money to have built a new home, buy a car, and live every day. And I had a postdoctoral thing set up. It was a very sweet deal. I was going to work at the CDC in a virology lab. I was set. And as I walked into that office, the way her office was arranged, there was like this outer vestibule and then she had an inner sanctum. And you always had a knock on the door before she would admit you. And as I was about to raise my hand to knock on the door, the significance, the magnitude, the permanence of the decision I was about to make just hit me like a truck. I wish I could have had a camera on me. I wish I could get some security footage because I did this like 15 times. As I realized that first impact of my fist on that door was going to change my life. I was going to ring a bell that could not be unrung, and words were going to come out of my mouth that I couldn't take back. I knew this woman. She was a very tough, unyielding person. Even if after I said it, I said, actually, you know what, on second thought... um, Maybe I changed my mind, she would have been like, I can't use you this way. If you're having second thoughts, leave. I got someone else to take your place. I knew the minute I entered that office, it was going to permanently alter the course of my life. And I don't know if you've ever been bungee jumping, but I got to imagine that standing at the edge of that platform, and I'm sorry if you have trouble with heights, I think this picture might cause you some anxiety. But standing at the edge of that platform, you probably have a similar moment. Fifteen false starts where you're like, all right, I'm going crazy. And finally, you would take that first leap, maybe that first step. And there would be a moment, which we call the point of no return, where after you cross over, there's no change in your mind. The die is cast. As Caesar said before crossing the Rubicon, it's done. Whatever's going to happen, there's no going back now because the minute you step over, gravity takes over and you don't get to control Z that decision. This person's well into that point of no return. If he changed his mind about bungee jumping, it's too late, he's going. And that's the way I felt that day. Once I cross this line, I can't cross back at all. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there right now. If not, I can pretty much promise you you will be there eventually, because over the course of a lifetime of following Jesus, each of us will be given several moments in our lives, key moments, where we're going to be at the edge of that kind of platform. And you'll sense The Spirit of God pulling at you to do something. Maybe it's to part with something that you never thought you could live without. I can't stop doing this. I can't give up this thing that I have. I just can't imagine it. And God is pulling at you to do it. And you're like, I can't. Or maybe it's to pursue something in his name that is so noble, but so big, it feels literally impossible to imagine that you, little old you, could possibly be a part of that. Our text this morning records that very familiar event when the disciple named Peter, who had grown at that point to become one of Jesus' best friends, steps out of a boat in the middle of a storm and walks on the surface of water. It's so familiar, we kind of just blow it off, but... Every time I step into a pool, I think about this story. How we take it for granted that some dude walked on water and how impossible that actually is. And I was going to just read the passage for you, but I think there's so much just sitting and passively listening. So I'm going to invite you to do this. If you look around you, there's little half sheets of paper. The text this morning is on there. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do while a little music's playing. I'm going to give you a couple minutes just to read through it one time kind of slowly. And pay attention. And after you've done that, just turn to someone, one person near you, and share for like 15 to 30 seconds something you that stood out to you, something that got your attention. Maybe it's an observation or maybe it's a question or attention, something you just go, what? So look at that verse, read it, that, that passage, and then turn to a neighbor and just share one thing which got your attention. And when you've both taken a turn, I'll call you back up here. All right? I think when we just listen, sometimes we hand over to another person at the mic too much control over where uh, our, our minds are going to go. But when we read it, when we talk about it, there's a sense of engaging with the text that's different. And I hope it was good for you to read that text. I want to just share some observations and, and comments from this that I think are important for us to glean from this story. And if you're taking those, maybe the first big point I want to make is that following Jesus is not always easy. When you look at verse 22... It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. That phrase, he made the disciples get into the boat, he made them, that's a very forceful word in the original Greek. It's a word that speaks to pulling an authority card, saying, no, I'm not asking, I'm telling you. Go. Go. And whenever you read a forceful word like that, a strong command where he's insisting, he's saying, I'm telling you, it's because there's resistance on the other side. For whatever reason, the disciples were hesitant to leave Jesus' side and crossed the water. Now think about this. They've just had an amazing day of ministry. They'd listened to Jesus preach An unbelievable message, and he taught a crowd of at least 5,000 people for the duration of the day. And then when he realized the people were starving, by miraculous provision, he multiplied a simple meal and fed the entire crowd of 5,000 people. And these disciples, these 12 people, had personally distributed that food. I did the math, and it's like 416 people a person that you'd have to distribute food to if there were 12 guys. And so this idea that they had participated in something supernatural that day, something that made their skin buzz, is like, I can't believe what we just saw. But it's also an exhausting day, because if you've ever ministered to a large crowd, no matter how joyful it is, it is exhausting ministering to large groups of people. And so at the end of that day, they knew that their teacher, Jesus, was probably the most tired of all of them. It doesn't say why they were hesitant to go ahead, but maybe it's because they felt like, why should you be left here dismissing the crowds and cleaning everything up? Let us stay with you and help. Or maybe it's because up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, they'd learned that every time they were with Jesus, things were better. It was safer, it was clearer, it was just better to be with Jesus than apart from Jesus. So like, Lord, is there any real good reason why we should cross over ahead of you? And he's like, you don't need to know, just go. Go to the other side of the sea, I will meet you there when I'm done. I, I don't think it's healthy to conjecture all the motives of why Jesus did that, but here's one thing I know for sure. Sometimes doing what Jesus asks us is not what we think we should do. I mean, the truth is, there are times when I feel like I know better, when I sense God is saying, do this, and then, or the Word of God says, do this, and I'm like, oh, no, I'd much rather do this. When it says, how many times shall I forgive, and it says 70 times 7, which is sort of God code for don't stop forgiving, and I'm like, oh, this person sort of hit their expiration with me. I think they hit their limit. How many times do I have to be the donkey who keeps forgiving and getting wronged? I feel like I should just dump this person. And Jesus, in his words, says, no, I want you to forgive until you lose count. And something in me rebels against that, says that's unreasonable. I don't think that's right. And, and the truth is, sometimes, even something as mundane as cross the, the water ahead of me on a boat, I'll meet you there. I don't want to. I'd rather just stay here and help you out. Sometimes, doing what Jesus asks us to do is not what we want to do ourselves. I won't say much more about that because I I think that will just by itself speak to someone here who might be stuck in that place. And when it's not what we want to do, we have a tendency, don't we, to question whether really God did say that. Uh, That that can't be right because nothing in my heart gives me peace. I don't feel any peace about it. I don't feel any goodness in my heart about it. Yeah, but you don't always feel peace in your heart about everything God wants you to do. Can we agree that's true? If you felt peace every time God told you to do something, couldn't a to reason you're actually God, because you perfectly, unerringly agree with God on everything? At that point, I'm like, I think you might have mistaken God's voice for your voice, because when there isn't peace, what do we do? I don't think it's God. I'm just going to go this way. Bye. We do this kind of by instinct. And so, the first point I want to make is these guys were forced to go across the water, but they didn't really want to. But they did it. And then it says in verse 24, and, the, and so, by the way, in between verse 22 and verse 24, Jesus spends most of the night praying by himself. And afterwards, he says, he looks up and goes, Oh, and I don't know if this was a teaching moment he set up, or he was just like, I didn't think this through, I don't actually have a boat. <laughs> Who knows what happened here? Maybe he's like, oh yeah, I forgot I'm, I'm God, I can walk on water. So he just starts going. <laughs> I don't know what, what exactly happened there. But it says the boat was already a considerable distance from land and buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So not only are they obeying a command they didn't agree with, but as they're obeying it, they're coming up against a strong headwind that makes their progress really hard. These are experienced fishermen. They've crossed this lake. It's a giant lake, which they call a sea, sort of like Lake Michigan. I think Lake Michigan, let's be honest, would be a sea in any other part of the world. And they're crossing this lake. They've done this many, many times. It should be a journey of a couple hours, but it was taking most of the night, and they weren't even halfway there. Sometimes we're doing what God has told us to, and despite all our best efforts and lots of time invested, nothing's happening. There's no progress. What gives? If God told me to do this, shouldn't there be fruit? Shouldn't there be change? Shouldn't there be results? I don't understand why I'm doing exactly what God said. I'm getting nowhere. And we begin to question, could this really be God? And the lesson here, at least in part, is sometimes when we're doing what God asks us, there will be slowness, frustration, opposition, obstacles, headwinds that make our progress seem interminably slow. And yet we're still doing exactly what God asked. I think there's a strong American bias that leads us to believe that everything that is right should go smoothly. Some of the most God-honoring relationships in my life, by God-honoring, I mean I think I'm really honoring God against the grain of my nature. Some of those relationships are the ones that have tested my patience and perseverance the most. And I've got to imagine that I probably am that person to someone else. I'm going to have a special badge in heaven for being friends with that Dave Lee. He's a hard one. You know, we sometimes look at what's happening and we think, if I set out to do God's work, shouldn't this be? You know, I've had past pastor friends who have quit because they said, I've been at it 20 years and my church is still like 25 people. I think I suck at this. I'm quitting. I'm like, what if you don't suck? What if that's the assignment God gave you? Is to shepherd 25 people with all your heart. What if that's it? What if part of it is if you stepped away, those people would not grind through the hard stuff. And that was your ministry. But we arbitrarily set a goal and say, hey, it should look like this. It should go like this. It should turn out like this. And when it's not, forget it. God's not in it anymore. I'm telling you, some of the things that God is most going to show up in our lives are things that take forever to see any progress at all. And the temptation is to bail way too early on the work of God because he's not working as quickly or making it as easy and efficient as we'd like it to be. So sometimes following Jesus is much harder than we feel like it should be, and yet it's still right to follow Jesus into those places. Are you with me so far? So, I mean, the first observation there is, it's not always easy or efficient or smooth. We don't always agree, and yet following Jesus is following Jesus. The second point, and I didn't, couldn't come up with a, a, a clever motif for the points, but in, in the Cold War era, President Ronald Reagan had this catchphrase whenever it came to US Russia relations. Or Soviet Union, not Russia. Back then it's the Soviet Union. And it was this trust but verify. Older people, can I get an amen? You remember that? Trust but trust but verify. Right? <laughs> that's that's what, what what Reagan used to say. And it was a, a phrase taught to him by one of his advisors, Suzanne Massey, and what she said was this is an old Russian proverb. And it, it governs the way they approach international relations. It's the way you should do that as well when you're dealing with them. A willingness on the outside to trust, but a relentless commitment to verify everything I'm trusting. I'll trust you, but not naively. I'll trust you, but I'm going to verify that you're worthy of trust. That's a shrewd approach to foreign relations. And although in application in international affairs, it's a little different, I think that phrase is helpful for the way that we follow Christ. There should be a willingness, an openness to trust his call on our lives and to follow where he's leading us. But don't naively think that everything that moves your heart and grips your heart is him. Sometimes my own desire shouts at me, masquerading as the voice of God. Because when I want something badly enough, I need for God to be agreeing with me. And so it's important before we jump off that platform to make sure it's a thing which God is actually asking us to do. Now, I'll be the first to admit, there's no way any Christian can be 100% certain about anything, right? About that leading of God. Is it God's will for you? I don't know about people who go, I know for 100% irrefutable fact that this is what... I think there's a conviction, a desire to follow, a commitment to this course, but I'm not sure we can know as limited human beings 100% what God is telling us to do. And so I'm not suggesting there can be absolute certainty. That would be a lie. I'd be misleading you. But I think there is a way to grow in confidence that before I take a leap of faith, that faith is not blind and misguided and naive, but it's a faith that I have checked to make sure my faith is in God and not just in a different future. Shortly before dawn, verses 25 to 27 here, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. By the way, that word ghost, in the Greek, it's phantasma. That's where we get the word in English, phantasm. They literally thought it was an apparition. That word only occurs here and in Mark's account of this incident. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. But it makes me think, at least in the ancient world, they had ghosts too. That was a thing that they had. said, This is an apparition. The spirit of a person floating on the water. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I don't be afraid now listen the voice was familiar the words were reassuring but i don't know about you just because they're ancient men doesn't mean they're idiots when you see a guy standing in the middle of the lake on the water talking to you my first thought is oh yeah that's our friend thank god it was just him i'd be like no i don't think so I think that's an evil spirit playing tricks on me. I wouldn't be so quick to be like, oh yeah, that's Jesus, our rabbi. Get in the boat, master. And so everyone's like, okay, sounds like Jesus. He talks like Jesus. But how could it be him? How could it be? The dude is walking on water in a storm. How on earth could it actually be Jesus in the flesh? So then Peter, always Peter, right? I think Peter might have been at Enneagram 7, and I think I actually have the spirit of Peter in me, because I often think before my brain engages, I, I often act, and then I go, oh. My brother is sort of like my brain after the fact, Dave. Do you know that 90% of the time my brother spoke in my name, it's with that tone, Dave, <laughs> Dave. As if to say... <laughs> So here's here's Peter's great idea and I think this is something he should be commended for. He says, "I know, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you in the water." I love this because what Peter's here's his logic. I don't know that it's him, but if it really is him, then nothing is impossible. This dude has shown us enough already. He's not normal. So, if it really is you, here's the great test. Tell me to come to you. Any phantom, any ghost can walk on water, but I know I can't walk on water apart from divine intervention. So let's do this. Tell me to come and I'll come. Only Peter would, the other guy's like, you're an idiot. They're all like on the boat going, okay, go Peter. Just see, let's, let's do this test. And so Peter goes out. And here's, here's what I love about it. You can say a lot about Peter, but at least he got out. There's a fine line though between noble faith and stupidity. And that fine line is whether you're actually stepping out in response to God or in response to the pizza you ate last night and some crazy idea that you got in a dream. We may sense that God is calling us to something, but we have to do all that we can to grow in confidence that it's really Him that we heard. I love that Peter says, if it is you. He doesn't just jump out. Normally, that would be classic Peter. Jumps out of the boat and tries to walk. But this time he goes, no, this is not normal. Even Peter says, if it is you, then I will go. How do you verify if it's God? That's a whole other sermon, but you guys know the general gist, right? Does it agree well with what God has already said in Scripture? If it's totally against what he's written in Scripture, he can't be saying it to you. He won't be saying, I know I said don't murder, but that dude deserves it. Go. Just go. I'll just turn the blind eye. You can't violate what God says in the Bible and believe that he's saying this just to you. That we call lunacy. It's also uh, a good idea to... Pray to the Holy Spirit and ask Him to move your heart. And the way I usually pray about this is Lord, give me a peace that isn't just my peace, but a peace that is unshakable. Also, give me a restlessness or an unsettledness if this is not you. Give me an active unsettledness if this is not you. And finally, turn to your community. God has given you the church so that you don't walk alone through the big decisions of life. Ask the people around you in your community group, on your ministry team, in your neighborhood who are believers. Ask your pastor or ask your small group leader. Seek counsel from other people. And after all that, if you're fairly confident that what you're sensing God is calling you to do is from God, then eventually you've got to get out of the boat. That leads me to my, my last point, which is you got to get out of the boat. One of my favorite riddles, and I've shared this a number of times here, is this one. Do you guys know where this is going? Okay, or maybe I haven't shared it as much as I thought I did. But There's a great riddle that I love. It's this, five, I'm going to test your math here, okay? Five birds are sitting on a wire. Three of them decide to fly away. How many are left? Shout it out. What's the answer? Five birds sitting on a wire, three of them decide to fly away. How many are left? Yeah, that's right. Most people say two, but it's five because deciding to fly away and flying away are not the same thing. And I always love that riddle because it speaks to me. I'm one of those passionate Enneagram 7s who dreams everything, and I'm always like, yes, I will, and then I don't. I decide a thousand things. If you just based me on my decision profile, I'm an amazing human being. Are you like that? I've decided so many great things. I'm going to get a six-pack this year. I'm going to read the whole Bible by March. I'm going (laughs) to... Deciding to do a thing and doing a thing are not anywhere close to the same thing. The funny thing about human psychology, though, is when we look in the mirror, what we see is the person who decides things, not the person who does things. It's not been there and done that. It's I would love to go there, and I would have loved to have done that. But in some weird twist of the mind, that's the person we actually become in our own heads. I am that guy. I am that lady. And the truth is, we're not. See, God doesn't just intend to move our hearts. He intends to move our bodies, too. I don't think God's goal is just to inspire us to have one of those. And This is maybe a, a uniquely Korean. This is a sound that, as a Korean, I've heard growing up, that, that actually is in the dictionary, if you could spell it. It's... <sighs> I'm sorry if you're not Korean, but I'm going to give you a lesson on, on that, this culture. That is like, ah, oh, yes. Yes. <sighs> killed me in my heart. I was so moved. It sounds like actually th- you actually have allergies, but it, it's a, a sound of conviction and blessing and, and all of that, of being moved. And so often, we stop there. And non-Koreans go, spit it out. <laughs> you collected the phlegm, spit it out. I think we should spit it out. I don't think the goal of God is to move us inside only. But that's the impression we seem to get sometimes, because we leave church going, oh man, that was a really good, oh man, I was so moved. But we're not really moved, we're just inspired. Movement is movement. And so I want to challenge us out of love, when we're moved inwardly, the proof is in the movement outwardly, eventually. We can't just be inspired and still say, God has spoken, I've heard, because we are, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you tell your kids, I need you to clean your room, yes, you're, oh, yes, you're right. Look at this room, mom. It's a mess. I'm ashamed of myself. I agree with you. And then the next day, it looks the same. You're like, oh, you were so moved at that moment. I told you, you were really convicted, weren't you? Yes, I, I'm still ashamed. I'm looking at my room. I didn't want to inspire you. I want your room cleaned. That's why I moved your heart. I don't mean to belittle I, I think we understand this, but it's so easy to let yourself off the hook on this. To reduce the movement of God's Spirit to the movement of an inward part of us without ever following through on the outward part of us. Whatever you want to say about Peter and his foolishness, his brashness, that dude got out of the boat. Eleven dudes huddled safely inside, going, Is he still alive? Come, Jesus said. That's it. I love that, that efficiency. Well, Peter, you know, like no, he just went, Come. Just come on. And Peter got down out of the boat. When you say got down, that means the boat was high enough. Have you ever seen the, the seawall on outside of the Shedd aquarium in Lake Michigan? It doesn't look like that much of a drop off, but if they didn't have those ladders built into the wall, you'd have a very bad day once you jumped in trying to get back on. It's just high enough, it's not that easy to get back on without help. So he gets down out of the boat, he commits himself, he's in there, and to his great surprise, he doesn't sink, but he actually lands on the water and stays on the surface. I think most of us at that point would have immediately looked around at the churning of the waves. I've shared with you before, dark, stormy water is my absolute worst nightmare. On the one time we went on a cruise back in 2000. With Chris and Shin and Paul and Jen, we went on this cruise. And I remember the first night, there had just been a, a terrible storm at sea. And the waves were really crazy. And the wind was so strong. And I remember looking over the edge from one of the top decks, looking down. And I, I almost died. Like It was so scary. All that dark, deep water just swirling. And I thought, if I fell overboard, I would die of fright before I actually got wet. I think I'd look at that water and basically say, oh, this is insanity. This shouldn't be happening. There's no way I'm going to make it all the way to him. What's interesting to me is Peter doesn't say to the apparition, if it is you, calm the waters. That seems like a more reasonable test or a result because in Matthew chapter 8, in a much, much worse storm, Jesus had already proven he could do that. Do you remember? Back in Matthew 8... They were on board a ship, and they were literally terrified for their lives. This time around, the storm wasn't that bad. It was just hard enough to make it hard to get to the other side. That time, they thought they were going to drown. And these are experienced seafarers. He'd already proven he can make a storm go away. So why doesn't Peter say, Jesus, if it's you, calm the storm. Maybe, and I'm just guessing here, it could be a sign of his growing maturity, the evolution of his faith. He's saying, I already know you can calm the storm. I know you can command the seas. I'm wondering now if you can command me. I'm wondering if in spite of the storm, you can command me in a way that even if you do nothing about the chaos around me, you can still lead me safely to you to help me keep walking even if the storm doesn't disappear because i think the majority of our prayers when we see a storm are make the storm go away not get me to the other side help me not to sink somehow if it is you get me through this i don't think it's wrong to pray for the storm to go away but i think it's wrong for that to be the only prayer we ever lift up make it stop make it stop sometimes the prayer has to be keep me going keep me going Make me get to the other side of this. Isn't that part of the gospel? The world is so broken, the most sane thing to do is quit when it gets hard. But I think one of the things Peter is saying is, I know you can make the storm stop, but that's not the way the world works. You can't be here for every storm. Storms come. Can I still get to the other side? Steve Brown, the president of Aero Leadership that I'm really a big, a big part of, he wrote a book called Jesus Centered. It, this book, I'm not really following the book, but the book sparked the inspiration for this series. Steve Brown, I've been trying to get him for years to be a, a retreat speaker for us. If you meet him, you'll recognize him to be the nicest man in North America. He lives in Canada, so I'm just giving him credit for the whole continent. I think he's the nicest man in North America. But... When it comes to following Jesus, he has this relentless conviction to give Jesus everything. And here's what he writes in that book that really jumped out at me. On the surface, Peter was stepping into real and serious danger. The wind, the waves, and the darkness made a strong case for it. This is where we need to reframe our perspective about danger. Our culture craves comfort. And idolizes safety. I don't think his point is that comfort and safety are moral evils. I, in fact, I think it's a, a sign of pathology if we seek trauma and danger. I don't think it's normal, and I don't think it's healthy. But when he says they are idols for us, it means we need and value those things so supremely that if worshiping Christ and worshiping comfort and safety come head to head, comfort and safety tend to win. He doesn't always test us this way. He doesn't always say, well, every time you follow me, I'm going to put you through the the meat grinder. I'm going to put you through the shredder. But sometimes... In the course of following Jesus faithfully, His path for us will take us right through the heart of danger. You know the 23rd Psalm we so readily quote, it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Our prayers would mostly ask God to help us walk around or outside or apart from that valley. But sometimes we must walk right through it. There's no other way. There are hard things in this life that are unavoidable. You can't dodge them. You can't avoid them. You can't plug your ears and la, 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 la. They're going to hit you. And sometimes in the course of following Jesus in obedience, that path will take you straight through the heart of one of the hardest things. I don't need to say this. Right? We all, we all know this. Some of, I, I know your stories. You've been through this already. Your life is living proof of this principle that to follow Jesus faithfully sometimes takes you right through the heart of danger and discomfort. It's tempting when that happens to question whether this could really be the will of God because shouldn't God always lead me to green pastures, calm waters? Isn't that how Psalm 23 starts? But I love that it includes that verse in verse 4. Sometimes it is straight through the valley of the shadow of death that he comforts me. Let me land this plane here. Peter sees the wind. You can't really see the wind, okay? But you can see what the wind's doing. And he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Now notice, Jesus was far away enough from the boat that they couldn't clearly recognize who he was. So this is some distance. Peter made it far enough that when he first started sinking, Jesus was just like an arm's length away from him. He just reached out his hand and grabbed him. So I want to give kudos to Peter. He didn't just be like one, two, look, look, look. It was like he made it pretty far, but then he got near Jesus and went, I can't do this. And here's the lesson I think for us there. Faith is a good thing. Faith is an important thing. Faith can take you very far, but faith, your faith is not going to be enough to get you all the way to the finish line. Be careful how you hear that. I don't mean faith in Jesus as the Savior, as existing. I mean your faith is not always going to be enough to carry you through every challenge, every trial and storm of this life. Faith will get you far. You've got to strengthen it. But at the end of the day, I don't know a single Christian who's made it to like 90 years old who wouldn't say, there were moments when I would have given up and drowned, when I sank beneath the surface and I cried out to Jesus, I can't do it right now. I don't have enough faith for this. I want to, I wish I had more faith, but I don't think I'm going to make it. And we cry out, and that's the pivotal decision, isn't it? I can say, I don't have enough faith, there's no way I'm going to make it. I quit. That's one decision. But that other path before you says, no, you're not going to make it. You don't have enough faith. Cry out to Jesus, save me. He doesn't just save you that one day at youth camp when you turned your life over and said the sinner's prayer. That's not the only time He saved you. He will save you again and again and again when your faith proves not enough. Listen, I'm a professional Christian. This is my job to follow Christ And yet, I'm going to be honest. There have been seasons in this ministry when I wasn't going to make it. Jeannie knows. On the outside, I put on a brave face, but inside, I'm like, I can't do this job anymore. I quit. I wish I had the faith to press me through everything flawlessly, but I don't. And I think neither do you. Faith will get you very far. But you will never stop needing Jesus to save you. And this is the good news. I love that Jesus says, oh, Peter, you of many faith. That word in Greek literally means small and faith. It's like a conjunction. Little faith, like a nickname. Little faith Peter. He's not saying, oh, man, you just, he, here's what he's saying. You've got a ways to grow in faith. I wish you had a little more but you've done the most important thing. You've cried out to me, and that is who I am. I am Savior. And without missing a beat, immediately, it says, Jesus reaches his hand out, caught Peter, before he even had time to sink beneath the surface, and he saves him. I'm so grateful this is our Savior, that when we're not enough, and we admit it, when we're sinking because we don't have enough, We can still cry out in that moment, help me, I'm, I'm about to sink here. I don't think I have it in me to go another day. And he does. This point right here marks a turning point, not just for Peter, but for all 12 disciples. Peter standing in the water, maybe ankles a little wet, but the rest of him is dry. He's like, what just happened? I should have gone totally under, but I cried out, and this man pulled me above the water as if he's standing on the ground. They had already seen Jesus do some remarkable things. But Peter out there on the water and the other 11 looking over the edge of the gunwales, they have a turning point here. It's the first time they call Jesus the Son of God. The first time he calmed the really big storm, what it records is they were in awe and wonder and they said amongst themselves, Who is this man? Now that's the beginning of faith when you go, This is not a normal dude. Who is this guy? He's not your average he's not just another teacher. Something is going on. This man talks to oceans and they calm down. He looks at demons and they they run away sick people come they touch the edge of his garment and they're healed who is this guy so they are in wonder but it is when they see Peter sinking beneath the waves and Jesus saves him they understand who he really is he's not just a magician or an extraordinary human being he is God who saves people we all sink; it is inevitable sinking should be the norm in this crazy world. And yet a person can cry out in their moment of weakest faith and doubt, Jesus, save me, I don't have enough. And they watch Jesus, their friend and teacher, reach down and pull this guy up. And as they get safely back on the boat, the waters calm, and it says, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is their turning point when they go from wonder and following as disciples to worshiping him as God this moment I believe explains in large part why they went with him all the way to the cross and beyond because you can follow a great man only so far I know many of you have trusted my leadership The leadership of the other pastors and the elders but i promise you one serious mess up one scandal and you will be shaken to the core you will find it extremely difficult to follow us if there's a screw up like that we've seen it left and right across the american landscape haven't we men whose books i read and grew from who now in some weird way i feel like am i supposed to pull them off my shelves How can I trust anything they said? You can follow a great man only so far, but you can only follow God himself to the very end. Only he can get you there. Let me close with this last thing. You know, we all have mixed feelings about group photos, don't we? Remember back before COVID when we actually had congregational retreats? Man, do I... That next, next congregational retreat we have, I think I'm going to be in heaven 24 hours a day for three days. The thing about group pictures, though, is we love the product. We just hate the process. Don't you just hate when that time of the retreat comes around? The only thing worse than being in a group photo is having to lead the group photo. And sadly, I've been in that position more than once. And the thought that goes through my mind again and again is, half these people are busy having conversations. I'm like, could some of you taller people go to the back? They're all just standing there staring at me. I'm like, this whole thing would be so much easier if I, who am trying to orchestrate this, could just get you to move where I'm asking you to move. If you could just do that, the picture that we get is so beautiful. You know, our world looks like an unholy mess. But the Bible paints a picture of a different world. The Bible paints a picture of a world that is being changed day by day by the forceful, powerful kingdom of the living God. That under the word and rulership of the most benevolent, one true God, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ the gospel which he brings, that alone, that hope, that power can actually fix the mess this world is in. Not perfectly, but we will see it grow and grow and grow. That picture is presented in scripture. It's a beautiful picture. And if we could snap that picture, we would put it on the wall and say, isn't this a beautiful world? And part of the reason it's so hard to get that picture is that the ones who are supposed to pose for it are just all off. It's like herding cats and I think Jesus who is the head of the body would say if the head could just get the hands to stay put the legs to stop shaking if I could just get everyone where I am asking them to be that picture would be beautiful our getting out of the boat our moving in response to faith matters because it's one of the ways that we participate in this redeeming plan of Jesus to heal our world There are people who need the hope that Jesus brings. Their lives are falling apart. And our societies, it's not just individuals. Look at our society today, how fractured it is. How hard it is to be alive right now. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we've got two choices, left or right. What about above? Aren't we supposed to be citizens of a different kingdom? And if we could be the people who He is calling us to be, if we could just yield ourselves to Him, go where He asks, do what He assigns, think about the picture He's trying to put together, how beautiful it will be. The people of God and the King of kings are the hope for this broken world. That's why our moving matters, not just for our own credit and righteousness, but because we are part of something much bigger than just us. And I want to challenge and invite you to participate in the beautiful kingdom of Jesus Christ by doing this whenever He moves you inside. Move outside too. Go where He sends you. Do what He tells you. I want to commit myself anew to live like that. I want to ask you to join me in that commitment. So I want to pause at this point in the service and just let's let's pray. Let's give God what we are able to give at this moment. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't know Him this way, maybe one thing you can pray is, "Why don't I see You like this? Is it just that You're not real, or I'm missing something I have yet to see?" So one way I got saved is I, I said a simple prayer. If I'm missing something, help me to see it. Help me to see you. So let's just pray for a minute, and then we'll close in a couple songs. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.